Well, thanks for tuning in. You're on localjobnetwork.com radio, and I'm your host, Jacqueline Peterson. You're listening to Government Compliance, where we take federal contractors and subcontractors through the current trends of affirmative action planning, equal employment opportunity, and Office of Federal Contract Compliance programs. And today we have expert guest, Sandy Ziegler, a recognized authority on federal EEO enforcement with 25 years of experience divided equally between the EEOC and the OSCCP. Sandy, thank you for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Before we dive into today's topic, can you just give us a little uh, background in regards to your experiences of, you know, getting regulations through the whole process of getting proposed to getting them approved and, and out there? Oh, yeah. Well, we have had, I have had the opportunity to uh, deal with regulations a couple of times, mainly with the uh, ADA regs, the original Title I regs for the EEOC, and also the 60-2 regulations over at OFCCP for, for written affirmative action programs. The ADA regs, we, we additionally put in uh, an uh, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking, kind of like they did in Section 503, okay. which tells the world you're going to regulate, and if you have any ideas about it, please contact us. Then follow that up by having meetings with various people. They had a lot of, you know, uh, sessions where the public could give uh, input or companies and then different affected groups could give input. You take all of that input. That's part of the, you know, just the thinking as you're going forward to figure out what kind of uh, regulation to draft. You draft the regulations. All these things are, are public and open and part of the record, uh, every contact that you have. And then uh, you, you just go through and you, you, you try to figure out how, what is it congressman to do uh, in the case of a statute or in this case, what have we done in the past with, uh, with Section 503? How can we do it better? What have we done with Section 4212? How can we do it better? And a draft is created. That's also published for notice and comment. Nowadays, they have electronic ways to contact the uh, government and, and supply comments, which I think probably is a very good thing because we used to get just reams of paper and letters and all kinds of stuff you had to plow through. Now you can at least go through a search electronically and, and, and read the things online, and the public has more ready access to what the comments are because you have to make all the comments available for the public to review and look at. Then after that, the, uh, the, the government has to read everything that comes in about their draft. And they also have to respond to the major points that are raised by uh, in large numbers of commentators. Okay. So if they're going to take something out or put something in, uh, they have to explain you know, why they made the decisions that they did, why they accepted or rejected certain suggestions. And that's why the, when these rules are published, they usually have a preamble. Both the notice of proposed rulemaking tends to have a preamble explaining what they're trying to do. Then when they publish the final rule, they have a preamble explaining why they made the decisions that they did. I see. When we were doing regulations, uh, when we got OMB approval, as the OFCP says they had here, I remember being in the lobby of the Federal Register waiting for the phone call that said there was OMB clearance oh, wow. and running upstairs and giving them the rules. So it published immediately. I've not had a situation like this where they say it's been approved by OMB, but it's not actually published in the register. I went on the register today trying to see if it was in there. I couldn't see anything there or at or DOL's website that said it had actually been published. And it, it must be published in order for it to begin to count down to effectiveness. And then once it is published, federal contractors and subcontractors have 180 days from that day to actually get everything in order. Is that correct? 
According to the, this particular regulation, that time frame can vary with certain regulations okay. depending on, you know, either if there's an announced time frame, if there's a default time frame. But here they want to apparently give at least that half a year to get, you know, kind of get your uh, act together to be compliant. So that's the way this rule is set up. And you had mentioned before, so they have the, the responsibility to read every comment that they get. So they actually go through every single comment. And then, if I heard you correctly, you said then they'll address the ones that had the majority thoughts or inputs. Yes, they have to. They literally do read them. Now, wow. one person doesn't read them. They'll farm them out to staff. And you'll have, you know, you read a chunk of those and you read a chunk of those and then they'll come together with the summaries. And, and, but they have, someone has to literally read these things. Uh, and, and they have to be able to, you know, compile their, uh, I guess, the way we did it, we know, like, here are all the people that are in favor of this provision, here's what they had to say, these are the, so you know what the main comments were, so that when you go to draft, to draft the preamble for the final rule, you'll be able to say, you know, we had, you know, so many contractors who were concerned about this, or a big issue raised was this over here, and here's why we chose to do this in response. So they're, they're, they are literally supposed to read these things and comment on, you know, why they make the ultimate decisions that they did. Okay. Well, we actually brought you in today because you recently wrote an article about the long-awaited Section 503 and VEVRA regulations, Section 4212. And I just wanted to get your overall thoughts regarding what was actually published. What surprised you the most uh, about what was finalized and what wasn't? Well, the the drafts of these rules were very, very prescriptive. They had a lot of things that the contractor in the original version, the unrevised rules, they were suggestions, and they became mandates in a lot of the, the uh, proposals. So uh, one of the, and, and also the I had just drafted this long article about linkage agreements, and I looked in there and it was gone. So I was surprised <laughs> about that. Darn. <laughs> And, uh, and some of the other regulatory requirements uh, uh, that they were proposing that were going to be very, you know, uh, I say prescriptive, it's like they're telling you exactly how you had to do certain types of things, that they, they've moved those things. They kept the ideas in, but they've moved them to be best practices, or they've changed it from a mandate to, you know, something that perhaps you should consider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and they also have shrunk some of the, the record-keeping time frames that they were going to extend. So they seem to have moved back from a lot of what I thought were overly prescriptive uh, aspects of the proposed rules. So one of the things I wanted to start off with is something that you had just mentioned was the linkage agreements. Why do you think that was deleted from both final rules? Well, I think the linkage agreement issue, to me, it was a bad idea, which I hope that's one of the reasons why they took it out. And also, I think there are a lot more complications that were built into it, considering what linkage agreements really originate as. The way linkage agreements are used uh, at at OFCCP, if a contractor isn't making the kind of outreach and good faith efforts that they're required under regulations to make, they will be cited for that. And when they're cited for that, then a remedy has to be put into place. And what the linkage agreement was is that the contractors agreeing with OFCCP that it will use certain resources, and OFCCP would identify what those resources had to be, and then they would, uh, a letter, not an agreement, but a letter would go to the resource to let them know about this agreement between the agency and the contractor. The way the linkage agreement was going to be changed in the proposal was that everyone was going to have to enter into three linkage agreements, whether or not they were making uh, adequate good faith efforts to be compliant with the affirmative action requirements, and it was going to be one of them. It was going to become essentially an affirmative action requirement, and the agreement 
would have not been something OF was leading so much, although they said they would assist contractors in you know, finding and, and, and executing these agreements. The parties to the agreement, as I read the, the proposal, would have been the resource and the contractor. And so you have a third party involved that the contractor doesn't control because he can't make this resource agree right. to uh, you know, enter into the contract. And then if they're entering into an agreement then usually there's enforceability around that, and none of that seemed to be discussed or worked out. The amount of time that they were saying it would take uh, was so small. I mean, they said it would be 1.5 hours if OF helped them with it. <laughs> I can't see how anything OF helps you with is going to be an hour and a, and a half. I just it just doesn't even happen. You have an hour and a half talking about you know whether or not your submission was adequate. I, I when I'm looking at this, you've got these people out here that you may be seeking to enter in agreements with. They got to first find out who OFCCP is, because not necessarily are all these people going to be that steeped in what OFCCP is. They have to understand what the nature of the agreement is, what's really you know involved, trying to get the right parties in the room. I just think it was a lot more complicated than it was it was described in the uh, proposal. So I, I think that that's part of the the issue when it comes to linkage agreements and then you know how does it go from this is your remedy to this is you know this is your requirement now what's the remedy if you don't do it i i just think that it was not a well conceived proposal and you know maybe they took it out because of that maybe they took it out because they couldn't justify it based on the history of linkage agreements linkage agreements have been around for a long time as a remedy and they don't have a stellar track record of actually increasing the employment of either veterans or people with disabilities I mean, they, they're out there, you, you direct them to people, you hope that there'll be some hiring that goes on, but OF really couldn't show you documentation that the effort that you'd have to make would have the result that the, the rule uh, is trying to achieve. Now, let's just play hypothetically here. If the linkage agreements had been passed, would the OFCCP had to have fined those organizations to connect the federal contractor with? Not the way it was set up. They, okay. They, what they did is they put they put certain identified certain resources in the proposed rule, and then they also said you could have other private resources, and they said you could access OFCCP in terms of getting them, calling them up, and trying to get them to help you, you know, work this sure. all out. Uh, but it wasn't uh, as if they were going to do what the the current FCCM says that the co- compliance officer supposed should be, be familiar yeah. with the resources in the area. They're supposed to contact these resources to assure that they, in fact, would be actual uh, places where you can get employees that you could use. And these kinds of things were part of what OFCCP in the compliance manual said the compliance officer was supposed to do and was supposed to be aware of and how they were supposed to help this linkage agreement remedy be put into place. Whereas the burden was being shifted much more to the contractor to go find these places, establish these relationships, create these linkages. So, I, you know, I think that was going to be a bit of a challenge. And in some areas, you know, the population of people with disabilities and veterans is not equally distributed around the country. And one of the things that they would say in the, the FCCM is that if you've exhausted the community resources and there really aren't any other sources, then they, there wouldn't be an obligation to put the contractor under a linkage agreement because basically you can't get blood from a turnip. You know, if there's nobody right. out there, there's nobody out there. But there wasn't that kind of limiting language in the proposal. So it wasn't very clear what would happen if the contractor, in fact, checked everywhere and couldn't find people in those categories that had the particular skill sets that it needed for its work. I'm not sure what was supposed to have happened. I mean, at least it was spelled out in the FCCM when it comes to remedy, but it wasn't very clear in the proposal. So there were a lot of things that I don't think they really kind of thought all the way through. 
uh, when it came to trying to convert the linkage from something that was a remedy to something that was uh, uh, an ongoing obligation all the time. And there was no end point. It wasn't a point at which, okay, I've done, I, I, you know, my, my process is working well enough that now I don't need to do this extra step. So even if you had the most effective outreach to, dis- to people with disabilities and veterans and you had a lot on staff, you were getting a healthy a number of people applying, you still would have had this obligation. And that's, right. that's the other thing that's kind of problematic about being overly prescriptive is that it's a one-size-fits-all, and if it doesn't fit you, then you're straining to try to, to meet this obligation, and it's taking away energy and staff from what was actually working. And yet it's not going to be a defense to you, at least according to the way the proposals were drafted, that, oh, but I've already, I'm already doing this really well another way. Another topic that I wanted to kind of switch gears on is that OFCCP had made some shifts in some language. Uh, they had changed, you know, shall to should uh, regarding uh, applicants who are persons with disabilities. Can you talk a little bit about that when you're looking to post and, and fill those vacancies? Yeah, the there apparently, according to what OF has said in their uh, what they published is, is the language in their, their preamble and their final rule that they were meant apparently to say that you should do something as opposed to you must do it when you apply for a position and it, and there is not that position either is not available or is not something that you could do that you would consider other other vacancies that the person might be qualified for. And apparently they initially really meant to, and I take, it, take them at their word, that they meant to say that, uh, you know, that you should do that, but not that you have to. Because, uh, and I was looking on, on EEOC's website, they, and they have these uh, frequently asked questions about reasonable accommodation. And one of the things they very plainly say is that you're not obligated to look for another position uh, you know, it's not required that you that you put the person in another position as an accommodation if they're not qualified for the position that they applied for. So, you know, that I think what what, what OF tries to do, and AD is more about non-discrimination. I mean, it's not so much an affirmative action law as it is a non-discrimination law. And OFCCP is trying to do affirmative action in Section 503. So what they're trying to do is urge you to do more than you'd have to do just for non-discrimination, but they ought not to have said that it was compulsory. And the shall sounds like, you know, I apply for job A, I can't do job A or job A is not available for some reason, then you're supposed to look for jobs B, C, or whatever else might be available so that I can potentially take that job. And what they what they what the change does is it makes it so that you, you don't have to do that for me, but if you want to, you know, you're trying to increase the number of of, uh, veterans or people with disabilities in your workforce and you know of other positions and this person appears to be qualified for them, that they are encouraging you to perhaps broaden your area of consideration for that individual, but it's not going to be a violation if you don't. Okay. Another thing that they had talked about was the record-keeping requirement. They had changed that from five years to three years, actually, in Section 503 and 4212. What's the significance of that? Why do you think they did that? I would imagine there's been a hue and cry about five years because that's a lot of record, you know, records to hold on to uh, for a lot of employers. And the, the customary time period for these records has been two years. Perhaps they thought three years would be less burdensome so they could record, you know, the lower number of burden hours. And, you know, at least two-thirds of that period of time could potentially be in a, a time frame where there could be some actual liability or action. You only go back two years from the receipt of the scheduling letter. So going five years, you're, you know, you're really well out of uh, the realm of anything that could be done about what, you know, what might have happened. They, their rationale initially for requiring these extended amount of data is the fact that they don't have data. So 
I think they were trying to shift the data collection responsibilities to the contractors. If you guys keep it for five years, we'll figure out some way to get hold of it. But, you know, clearly contractors have other things to do, uh, and they don't want to have to take on these governmental responsibilities of trying to get this data. So I, I would imagine that was the compromise to bring it down to three years, because maybe contractors aren't disposing of everything exactly on the anniversary date of the two years, right. so it might not be nearly as much of a burden as if they had to keep it for more years than that. Now, I know we had talked about this a little bit earlier when we first started, was that after the rules get posted to the Federal Registry, then for this these particular sections, they'll have 180 days before they go into effect. For employers who are currently in their affirmative action plan, they will have a little bit of wiggle room. Is that correct? So then once their affirmative action plan renews again the next year, then is that when they would have to start including these new regulations into their affirmative action plan? Well, that's my understanding is that they don't want to stop people midstream right, of, right. A, of an, an already ongoing affirmative action year. Uh, and they also have to actually get this thing published before your time starts running anyway. So right. there's, there, there are some more procedural steps that they're going to have to go through in order to get the clock to start ticking. But I think that most of the time when I've seen OFCCP regulate, they, they won't want you to change mid-year, it's harder for them to review it to begin with. It's right. easier to review it under, under the set of rules that it, was, that it was created under and then have a date certain for a brand new one that starts under the new sets of rules. So I think that works better for both the contractor as well as the agency, because the agency has to get up to speed about what these regulations require them to do as well. So they, they both, both sides of the equation need some time. Yeah, there's a little bit of wiggle room there. Okay. Mm-hmm. Another topic I wanted to talk about was the reasonable accommodation procedures. Um, you actually stated in your article that it was a major deletion in Section 503. Uh, basically, they deleted the requirement for written reasonable accommodation procedures. Can you go into that a little bit? This is one of those places where the rules Uh, are going to change from saying you have to have accommodation procedures and they have to include these specific actions to putting them in a separate section and calling it best practices. What that does is it keeps contractors from having to rewrite all of their accommodation procedures to match, you know, the specific prescriptive language that they have uh, they had in the proposal. And I think that, to me, that's helpful for contractors because this, I mean, the, the ADA Section 503, these disability laws have been in place for quite a while at this point. So you're not talking about people starting with no procedures at all. So for the agency to say, okay, well, here's the best set of procedures and you should follow these. A, I don't think they have a basis, in fact, for saying those are the best ways to go about doing it. And it would create potentially more of, in my view, more energy going to trying to make sure you don't make a technical file because you didn't say exactly what OF would have had you say in your written accommodation procedures when, in fact, you may have effective accommodation procedures. So, you know, that that's helpful. There, uh, there are some specific things they want you to do, like, uh, you know, basically give a receipt to somebody to let them know if they, you know, a, a written acknowledgement that they made the request and all these kinds of things, which you'd have to recognize it was an accommodation request because there aren't any magic words, then how quickly you get the receipt out, and then there were time frames by which you had to do certain things, all of which are being basically drafted in a vacuum. You have, uh, you know, you have the agency saying, okay, here's how it should go, but they're not in the workplace. They're not in the, gov- in, in the companies that the government is contracting with. So it's very difficult to know that this is going to have the desired effect. To me, it's, it's much better to have 
the just you know you have the requirement for the affirmative action, you have the requirement for non discrimination, but let the details of how it gets done, whether you know it's in writing, you know which way, what the writing says, because uh, most of them are in writing, I would imagine, that just in general, because you know the contractor wants to be able to show that it's taking the proper steps. But it's yeah, I think it's a lot more manageable if you're not worried about uh, making sure you have this precise way of going about it, as long as the way you're doing it is legally sound and they then the agencies have the mechanism for examining your accommodation procedures and making sure that they're being carried out in a lawful manner without telling you how to do it precisely. Okay, so more of a best practice at this point then. Uh, yes, in fact that's exactly the words that they're using now. They said you know the following are best practices and they basically lift the things that were going to be requirements and they've moved them over uh, in a section called best practices. So if you want to take advantage of some of these ideas, you think they're good, they're there, they're available. You know, if you're a new contractor just trying to set yourself up, you know, you have that additional information, but you're not tied to doing it exactly the way uh, OF was, was telling you to do it in the proposal. Now, I also want to talk about data analysis. I know this was a big one for Section 503 and Section 4212. Can you just kind of summarize what they decided with the data analysis for, for both regulations? Well, it seems to me they took this ratio business out. I mean, the ra- <laughs> I mean they basically, they, it seems to me they've, they've put down, okay, give me total numbers. Give me raw data. How many applicants self-identified? How many people, how many job openings did you have? They, so that you're getting raw data. And it makes sense because even if you calculate something, I mean, you can run an IRA. You send it into OFCCP. Are they going to say, oh, well, it's already done for us? No, they're not. They're going to get the raw data <laughs> and rerun all of that stuff to make sure that their numbers are numbers that they can live with. So asking the contract to do all these calculations, I think, was probably a waste of time anyway. What you need is the data so OFCCP can do what calculations it feels necessary in order to ensure compliance. Because they're just they're never going to rely on analysis that a contractor does. They're going to always want to get the, the raw numbers so they can build it. And then the argument starts back and forth about, well, when I run it, I get this. Well, when we run it, we get this. You should take this name out and that name out. And that's, you know, that's basically how it goes. So data analysis is part of, in my view, part of the enforcement responsibility of the agency. And even if they had to do it, they'd have to do all this calculation over again. So, you know, they can save some more burden hours. And I do think they were trying to get some of the burden hours down by backing off of uh, a number of these things that they were going to otherwise require contractors to do. So basically, they've gotten rid of the referral requirement, but they want to know how many people have applied and how many people you actually hired. Right. And also, they getting got rid of the, you know, they wanted applicant to hire ratios. They right. wanted they wanted all these different different calculations, and they've they've just stepped away from that and said, okay, here are the you know here are specific things that we need that are actual serious hard numbers right. that they could do something with. Okay. Another category that I did want to talk about was the elimination of sixty two fifty, which was uh, a veterans regulation. Can you go into that for us? Right. The vet the sixty dash two fifty only applied to contracts that were entered into and not modified after December first of two thousand and three, which was of course ten years ago. So there there are not a whole lot of contracts that would have been that that provision would have applied to. So rather than have a because right now what they have is the sixty dash two fifty is a full regulation with all the different provisions. Then you have sixty dash three hundred, a full regulation with all these different provisions. Just get rid of 60-250 because there's so few contracts that would have not been at least modified since that time. And they put a provision in the 60-300 that's meant to capture 
anybody that would have had rights under 60-250 but not under 300 for those lingering contracts that might be out there in that category, they just created a, a provision that basically preserves the rights that they would have had had they republished the entire 250. I see. And to me, that's, you know, it's a lot easier for, for people to follow because you don't have these two regs and you're getting confused as to which one applies to you. I see. So it's just basically including that into the 60-300. Well, yeah, just well, just including a, kind of a catch-all part, sure. saying that you know, if, if you would have had rights under 250, basically those rights have been preserved under 300 I without see. having to republish uh, a whole 250 with with new language added in and a whole 300 with new language added in. I think it's a lot clearer, a lot less publishing of stuff, <laughs> and uh, and I think it'll be a lot less confusion at the end of the day. I, there may be some people out there who think they have these uh, these contracts or actually have them. But they, the agency doesn't run across them very often. I, I don't remember running across any of those you know, after a certain point. So you know, I would imagine that that very rarely is going to be an issue. What does this mean to federal contractors, subcontractors, employers, compliance specialists? What does this really mean to them, and, and how should they prepare? To me, I think that it, it takes away a lot of the things that were of, of uh, legitimate concern uh, from contractors in terms of you know, all the, the additional I's that they'd have to dot and T's that they have to cross because they've moved so many things from being mandates to being suggestions so that it's not you know it's not quite as onerous as it was going to be otherwise also with this record keeping while they'll have to make some adjustments i think it's probably easier to adjust to the 3 year than the, than to the 5 year uh requirement uh i think when it comes to the projects that they have in place right now like if they're their own written uh, accommodation procedures, relationships that they've built, those things don't have to be upended in order to turn them into something that OF has prescribed. So for a con- from the contractor's perspective, I think it'll be much uh, more uh, simple to prepare for the new regs from the you know, record-keeping perspective and, and shifting current practices. They do introduce a goal uh, for people with disabilities and a, an option of either taking OFCCP's goal or, or finding uh, data and support and creating your own goal for veterans. So that'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. I'm not sure exactly what's expected. The uh, agency repeatedly says that you will not, won't be penalized if you don't attain this goal because it's not a quota. Right, but it's a goal. Surely there will be activities to see, you know, who who's out there and, and whether or not uh, the recruitment can be enhanced or the hiring can be enhanced. Uh, based on the perception of, of who's out there with the skill set. So there will be work to be done in that area that hasn't been done before. But I think all in all, the, the, uh, you know, it may not satisfy everyone, but a lot of what I heard contractors complaining about uh, are these things that the agency has now stepped away from. So that's why I say it's a step in the right direction. It you know, may not give everybody everything they want, but at least some of the things they truly did not want uh, are not showing up in the uh, the final rule as they've announced it. So do you have any tips or final thoughts or even best practices that maybe federal contractors should start preparing just to plan ahead? You know, I think they've been trying to plan ahead for the last two or three years. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's been so many of these you know, proposals have been floating and there's so much that was going to be required. I think at this point, it, you'd probably do well not to... I wouldn't spend money on changing it just yet if there's something that has to be changed. But I would familiarize myself with what the, the at least the, the announced final rule is. And, and look at your program. Make sure that it, you are able to show the effort that you're making. I know the, there's a lot of talk about the, the best way to show that you're doing good faith is that you actually hire people. Well, that's, you know, that, that's kind of true, but it also is kind of, in a way, I think, causes people to think that it's more of a quota than it really is. You, you need to be able to show that you know, we do make an effort 
specifically targeted toward individuals with disabilities, specifically tar- targeted toward these categories of protected veterans, and you know, and and be able to show how you do that. The other thing that's pretty major, I think, in terms of changing practices, is that now they want to, as part of the affirmative action uh, effort the invitations to self-identify are going to be moved for earlier in the process. And I think they have to be uh, careful about that and uh, really review what's proposed so that the, you, know, you don't put yourself in a situation where either the data is not housed correctly because it can't you know, be kept separate from sure. regular personnel data. Make sure you know who has access to it because you don't want to run into uh, violations uh, by having the wrong people being able to see this information you need to be careful when the recruiters and the people who are doing the hiring, what, what, what information is available to them when it comes to whether the person has a disability. All of those kinds of things, I think that, that there may be a good thing to do is to try to think about how would I handle this earlier self-ID in a way that's not going to uh, you know, get me in trouble down the road. Well, thank you, Sandy. We do appreciate your expertise and experiences about this ever-evolving topic. And this does it for today's show, Government Compliance. Continue listening to LocalJobNetwork.com radio for your latest employment-related programs. And if you have comments, suggestions, or questions, email us at ljnradio at LocalJobNetwork.com. I'm Jacqueline Peterson for LocalJobNetwork.com radio. Thanks for listening.